Another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I'm delighted to welcome Steve Unwin, lecturer in biosystems and environmental change at the University of Birmingham School of Biosciences in the UK, and he is also a European specialist in zoo health management. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Sabrina, for having me. It's really appreciated. And just hearing you read that out, I thought, ye gods, what a mouthful. I'm going to have to cut it down. But um, great to be here. <laughs> well, it's absolutely wonderful. And you have done so many things. You're still doing so many things. So we could just be adding all kinds of <laughs> wonderful activities and titles to this. But I'm sure during this podcast, we're going to hear a lot about all the wonderful things you're doing. So could you start with a short introduction to yourself, please? Sure. Well, um, hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm, uh, you, hope you can tell from my accent, I'm a lapsed Kiwi currently living in the UK. Uh, and uh, like many people in the veterinary sciences, I've got into my line of work because I just loved working with animals, had a little bit of a wobble, realizing that actually working in welfare, animal welfare and conservation and health means you have to work a lot with people, um, uh, but actually now really love doing that as well. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I grew up in New Zealand and uh, did my university training there uh, and then um, started to spread the wings and um, explore the world. Wonderful. Yes, it's, it's always really funny to hear, you know, we get into this line of work because we really love animals and nature. And then, oh, yes, we have to do a lot of work with people, you know, and human behavior change and all kinds of wonderful things. And uh, yeah, so that's, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about that too. So you mentioned growing up in New Zealand and doing your veterinary science degree there. And then you started working in zoos and other facilities. Can you talk uh, a little bit about yeah, how... Sorry. So, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so, um, sort of that. Um, uh, I actually did an ecology degree before going into vet. Um, and my wonderful wife, Atina, um, will probably attest to this, is that we met each other in first year university on both on the vet school. Um, and potentially because of that, didn't get immediately into vet school. Um, so we both went on and did ecology degrees. But um, that was an excellent grounding. Uh, so it was an accident, but it was great that it happened. Um, including meeting my wife, um, because that gave us a grounding in uh, animal biology and conservation, um, uh, and then by inference welfare as well, that you don't get a lot of in a straight veterinary science program. Um, the downside is I ended up spending eight years of uh, my formative life at university initially, but um, that it led to a wider appreciation and of the natural world, I think. And that, I mean, growing up uh, as members of things like um, the, uh, the um, uh, Jonah Foundation for Whale Protection and the Jersey Wildlife Conservation Trust, as it was back in the day. Uh, and so always having that 
fascination with the natural world. And I know we mentioned the issue, or not issue, but um, you know, you wanted to work with animals and then end up realizing you have to work with people. And I know a friend of ours, I'm sure Mark Ankren has coined it really well is that conservation isn't actually about animals, it's, it's about people. And the individual from a welfare point of view, we only need to concern ourselves with that really because of how humans interact and behave with animals. Uh, and so uh, that initially was uh, illuminating to me as I was going through my um, uh, early career, uh, but now is actually part of the work that we do that I um, absolutely love. So starting to work in zoos, that actually came about because of my ecology degree rather than my veterinary degree. Um, and um, I, there weren't that many people in New Zealand, thankfully, at that time. And we're talking here about um, uh, the early 1990s. Uh, so that's the last century. Yeah, I'm that old. Sorry, contemplating that. But anyway, um, uh, then uh, the, being able to work at a place like um, Auckland Zoo, um, uh, which also had a lot of, did a lot of work with the Department of Conservation in New Zealand, so having that link between in situ and ex situ was um, drilled into me uh, very early on. Um, my mentor, um, uh, Dr. Wayne Boardman, who's currently at the University of Adelaide, and I'm pretty sure you know Sabrina, I think. Um, uh, we first met in 1993, um, and it was a marriage made in heaven. Um, and uh, so I started doing their looking at sort of animal behavior. And then as I went through my clinical degree, linking that to the clinical um, side of being a vet, um, uh, because that's another thing too, is actually in vet school, it varies between schools, but you don't often get a lot of um, uh, uh, training in animal behavior, including human behavior. And that's kind of vital for the work we do. Yes, absolutely wonderful. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later also. Can you talk a little bit to, you know, there's a lot of people who want to get into zoos and aquariums, perhaps working with sanctuaries, or you already mentioned working on location or in situ or next situ facilities. Some of the suggestions or, you know, how did you get into that work? Obviously it was easier at the time, but maybe you have some nuggets to share for people who are listening. Sure. So um, when I got into vet school, I was very focused on the natural world, so working with wildlife. Um, and for those of you listening who are currently at university, either in, um, uh, in, in the sciences or, or at vet school, um, uh, then uh, hopefully like me, there are opportunities to be able to get involved in things um, uh, in that sort of uh, conservation and welfare area. And so for me at Massey University in New Zealand, um, it was um, a, an NGO in Thailand uh, offering um, uh, accommodation and board for um, trainee veterinarians to go and help um, in wildlife centers in Thailand. Um, for those of you who are not going, who are not in university, or who are not going through that, it's it's really important to get yourself known by um, uh, people who are already working in it, so showing that enthusiasm. So for me, that person was Wayne Boardman, which is why I mentioned him before, because um, when I was looking at 
uh, who've done this work, sanctuary work uh, in wildlife rehabilitation in, in Thailand, both as a student and then as a, as a new graduated vet. Um, uh, Wayne was working in Uganda within, um, at a place called Ngamba Island, which was part of the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance. Uh, and uh, I, Atina and I were looking for new field challenges. And so it was serendipitous. I would not have worked with PASA if it hadn't been Wayne. I would have never have worked in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think that's important to sort of think it's, it's always comes back to who you know and how you sort of um, get into that, uh, the, the, into those sorts of relationships, as opposed to trying to find an organization. Once again, it always starts with the people. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's so many ways, especially also today, you know, maybe you can't travel all the way to Thailand or Africa, but there's certainly, like you mentioned, so many opportunities in maybe the organizations you work with or the universities and creating all kinds of networks and, you know, volunteering online, even in various ways, depending on what you want to do. Maybe you want to work in communication because that's another wonderful thing in our work for animals and for the planet. There are just so many different types of jobs. Uh, some are directly, you know, with the animals or uh, in nature, but some of them are about communications around it or scientific approaches. And yeah, so there's lots of nuggets there for you to take home. And um, I don't know, did you want to add something? No, no, that, no, that, that's, that's, that's actually um, uh, Hundred on on the money, Sabrina. Because um, you know, a, a, as a vet, uh, we are trained to look after the individual animal or population of animals for their health. Uh, and to be able to do that properly, you have to be able to be a good communicator in a variety of different forms for the other people who are involved in that animal's welfare, conservation, or management. And so, I would say communications, both what we're doing here, social media, in, in media in general, is vitally important because we're at the basics, a storytelling ape. So if we're wanting to get people enthused or um, empathetic or involved in the work that we do, what you in my opinion, what you don't do is bombard them with the facts of how terrible things are, but actually start telling stories. And that's why I think these ideas that these podcasts are fantastic because it allows you to uh, get more personal with people and be able to tell those sorts of stories. And that's way more effective, I think, than um, uh, just bombarding people with facts and stuff all the time uh, when you're trying to make things better. Yes, absolutely. And we have, you know, we had the opportunity to have a wonderful podcast also with Carl Safina. And he talks very much to this point about, you know, touching people's hearts. And, you know, we know already so many things, but how do we get to touching people's hearts, you know, in a way that they are looking at the natural world, other animals and helping to protect them and save them and and all the other things that you could do also from your home. And also just talking about knowing people, um, you know, you have worked in a lot of different facilities and you still are as a consultant and you worked at Chester Zoo. And I came to work at Chester Zoo as a consultant. You did indeed, yes. And that's how we met, right? So <laughs> yes. about knowing And people. then came on with Parser and stuff as well, but yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so tell us more about your work at Chester Zoo. And uh, yeah, let's start with that. 
Okay, so um, again, it comes down a little bit to who you know. Um, uh, back way, way, way back in 2001, um, uh, I met the then head of uh, veterinary services at Chester Zoo, uh, a wonderful person, um, Staff Sanderson, who um, uh, is now president of sort of executive director of the European Zoo Vet Association. But anyway, um, uh, we got to chatting and at that stage, I had no indication of coming to the UK. M my mum's from England and um, we still think it's absolutely hilarious that she spent half of her life trying to get away from this country and I'm now living here. But anyway, um, and then I went off to Africa and, and uh, worked uh, with PASA. And I had never visited Chester Zoo before, but I knew uh, it by reputation. Um, it's one of, I've no, known from experience, it's one of those places that walks the walk when it comes to um, its welfare and conservation sort of um, uh, uh, aspirations. Um, and Come 2003, um, I see they're um, uh, offering a place in a uh, as 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 a, uh, as a vet veterinary uh, associate, and uh, I throw my hat in the ring. Um, uh, but at that stage, um, I'm working in a uh, pasa um, sanctuary in um, Cameroon, Limbe Wildlife Centre, and I remember vividly the interview I had. I'm sitting on the the bonnet of a Land Rover, surrounded by chickens, um, uh, and they were, they, they, that's important because they were um, uh, squawking so loudly um, it was difficult to hear what the questions I was being asked for the interview. But obviously, they heard something in me, and um, uh, they took a punt and offered me a job back in two, um, 2003. Uh, uh, and the following um, 15, 16 odd years uh, were formative in my experiences. It's not often you have an organization that you work for that gives you the freedom to come with your own projects. So, for example, with the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, Pasa, I was, already, I was heavily involved with that and um, they allowed me to carry on with, with that uh, and, uh, and future ventures as well. Uh, and also hand on heart being able to see the true passion and understanding of what animal welfare is uh on a at a animal carer or animal keeper level as well that's very important and as, as you said you know we met um uh, when you came along uh, as a as a consultant um and i i would be interested in your take because i, I always had the feeling that um well, growing up in Australasia, the word animal training had a very different connotation to what was here in the UK. And just using that word was totally, um, it's, it was like a dirty word here in the UK. And I, I think there is, there's, there remains a bit of a, a misunderstanding. Um, and and uh, so I don't know what you think about that, Sabrina, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that was just my uh, impression. But other than that, uh, working for that organization uh, was absolutely uh, amazing. And they, they uh, allowed me and my colleagues to pursue um, both in situ and ex situ uh, projects that still continue. So I, 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 I still contract Chester Zoo for the OVAG work for each year, for example. So uh, it's, uh, it's just keeping that those networks there um, that um, just just work and you can see year on year things getting better yes absolutely and that was also my you know experience working with Chester staff the animals care staff who were training animals or doing enrichment just general welfare and care aspects 
you know, really the dedication that they showed. And, and it's interesting you, you talk about the word training, because I think indeed, especially when I started Animal Concepts in 2004, I was using words like learning, interaction. And I was right. trying to like not use the word training because a lot of people were like, what are we getting, you know, tigers to jump through hoops? And so the whole idea of what that word meant, the association to circus-like behaviors and, you know, and not thinking necessarily about the opportunities that we indeed have to, you know, collaborate with animals so that we can care for them. And, uh, but the, yeah, the staff at Chester Zoo are very, there's a lot of good uh, trainers out there, animal care staff really that do the training. And uh, it was really a joy to work uh, together with them. And as you say, also the continuation of those collaborations of, you know, whether I always talk about global collaborations for animal welfare, you know, everywhere there are yes. people with different skills, different experiences, different backgrounds. And together, you know, we, we move things forward for animals and the planet. So yeah, and Chester, and it was wonderful. Uh, and this is how I got involved with, with PASA, <laughs> of course, uh, that was through you. So thank you again for that. That's I actually, I, 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 I just remember us working together really well. I can't remember how that started, but that, but that, but that's that's the thing is, that you, it's that's where the people side comes into it. Is that um, you get that that uh, not just the passion, but the, or the expertise, but um, teams together that just seem to gel well and uh, it works better for the animals. Yes, absolutely, and we're going to hear a lot more uh, about PASA. Can you also talk? Sorry. About, yeah, for sure, because it's such an important organization, very dear to both of us. Yeah. But um, can you talk a little bit about your different lines of work and research interests that you have been involved in and or still are continuing? Sure. Okay. So um, when I was a full-time um, clinical vet, both at Chester and, and the other places I've worked um, uh, around the place, uh, it was obviously the research I was in, I was into was looking at um, specifically animal disease and how to be able to prevent that within the zoo or within the sanctuary. But that quickly developed into um, always from the beginning uh, working with multiple people and multiple teams to try and fix situations. I remember uh, back in the early days at Chester uh, we had um, uh, a, a group of red birds of paradise uh, that had were having issues with this um, uh, 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 trematode worm in their kidneys uh, and uh, we were able to work and fix the, the situation uh, with colleagues at the Natural History Museum in London uh, and uh, with other zoos getting together. And it was those sorts of um, early experiences um, uh, and also with the husbandry um, teams, the, 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 the bird keepers and curators and what have you um, uh, at the zoo uh, to with all of these different areas of knowledge based on animal behavior, on the animal's biology, uh, and also in um, the idea of uh, multi-species environments that, and I'm gonna talk about uh, maybe the concept of one health and one welfare later, but it, it, that understanding that 
um, human uh, the, the animals are within a an, an ecosystem, whether that's a small ecosystem within a zoo or whether that's in a large ecosystem out in the wild. And that's a tricky question as well. What is actually truly wild anymore in this Anthropocene era? But anyway, um, and and that means that the work we get involved in um, or the work that I got involved in started to expand beyond beyond looking at um, health issues in individual animals or even individual species. So becoming very interested in multi-species issues, not just looking um, at pathogens, but um, uh, we've started some early work on looking at in the microbiome um, uh, in apes, for example, and how that interacts with uh, the rest of the internal body systems and the difference between uh, uh, in the wild and in captivity. Uh, currently, I mean, the, um, the, just before this call, I'm um, helping IUCN and WCS colleagues come to grips with the African swine fever issue uh, that is currently take, ravaging through um, uh, Southeast Asia. And so it's multiple people, multiple species. Uh, I'm working with colleagues at Minnesota and um, in in uh, in Kenya um, on the issue of tuberculosis, and that that comes back to Pasa. So, uh, looking at uh, as a system, uh, people, livestock, and uh, wildlife in the area, and how these sorts of pathogens sort of uh, move around. So, I know we start at the beginning of talking about people, but I like that comes that leads to the term community. And so the research and that and projects that I'm interested in start to sort of coalesce around that idea of community. And that means you get a better understanding that it's not human versus natural environment uh, as part of the storytelling idea, because uh, what are humans other than natural? Uh, I hopefully we're not unnatural because I don't even know what that means, but because we are so predominant on the planet and changing so much, uh, we had those different roles for us to play to be able to protect that. But that doesn't necessarily that doesn't mean that what we do isn't part of the natural environment. And so tr having that narrow to say, if we're disturbing the natural environment, either in health issues or whatever, then that has implications for ourselves, and that makes the message much easier to. Um, put forward as a, as a as self-harm, what we're doing to the planet, what we're doing to other animals, what we're doing to the ecosystems is a form of self-harm. And how can we get our admittedly amazing monkey brains to pivot and begin to see that? Because at the moment, I think a lot of the narrative is still them versus us as an environment versus human. And that doesn't help anyone. So I try to get into projects that combine that message uh, that promotes us as part of the solution, not just the risk factor or, or driver of um, a, uh, an environmental catastrophe. Yes, and that's, that is so important also to really look from the perspective of, you know, like you say, we can be drivers, but we can also be part of that solution. And, and often also that makes the conversation much more easy and understandable, especially for people who don't necessarily 
connect with animals or connect to nature in similar ways that we do, or maybe have the same, like you talked about, you know, touching hearts and getting people to care. Um, so having, even though we might feel like, why do we always have to frame it uh, in what way it relates to humans or what we can learn from it and how it can maybe perhaps make us better and all those other aspects. Sometimes it is necessary to really go to where is that common ground where we have a dialogue, where we have a connection, where we can start to talk about things and then change things ultimately also for animals, for ecosystems, for the planet. But sometimes we have to go also to areas where we don't necessarily, you know, which is not really our first maybe drive to want to go, but uh, it's key for creating I, that connection and dialogue. With I people. get that. I mean, this is the reason why he's my best friend, but my best friend trained as a lawyer. And so it's very good to bounce ideas off for somebody who's not in the animal welfare slash conservation bubble, as it were, uh, or not embedded in eco the, an ecological way of thinking uh, to sort of get a bit of a straw poll to sort of get that sort of idea. And then you get an organization like um, Client Earth come along and I really recommend um, uh, podcasters to uh, investigate this organization as something that is actually they're one of the few organizations I've found that or looked into that is actually changing government and global environmental policy by um, prosecuting governments with their own environmental laws. And part of that is prosecuting governments with their own animal welfare laws. And at this stage, it's mainly in, in relation to livestock movements um, and you know global livestock movements but um, I'm hopeful that uh, wildlife both in situ and situ is not far behind because uh, that's another thing too is although we can be part of the solution where things often break down um, in uh, welfare programs or in conservation programs and I'm saying I say that for welfare stuff either domestic or in, in wildlife is a lack of either enforcement or poor governance and these are the sorts of things that I, as a clinician um, uh, and, a, uh, and, and a university lecturer, have got no expertise in, but by having a lawyer and an economist on your team, so things can be put into a framework that non-ecological -ecolo folks people can understand can get their heads around especially policy makers that's a smart thing to do so that i think that's yeah and that's where um people are starting to figure figure out it, it's it, to get away from that idea of environment versus uh, or animal versus human uh, so yeah yes absolutely and it's so important to really look at all these aspects from a policy level, system level regulations to, you know, the, the changes, the practical day-to-day, -day, the grassroots movements and all these things, because obviously, like you say, we don't, we might not have certain expertise, we might not have access, we might not have those opportunities. So everybody, you know, has a role to play in at different levels, at different, um, you know, activities and and processes that all need to be addressed. 
And for that, you know, again, global collaboration across disciplines is really necessary. Uh, because like you, you know, I'm also not a lawyer or, or an economist. So, um, and also they're all different languages. Like even when you talk about oh, yes. <laughs> you know, microbiomes and all kinds of, you know, that's a veterinary language that of course we can learn part of, but um, yeah. So how can we all contribute with, uh, our own expertise and languages, right? To make change. And, no, absolutely. And that's, and, and that's the other thing as well, is that you it can be overwhelming. And I'm sure you felt this as well, is that what can we as individuals do? But that's the whole, that's why um, Extinction, Extinction Rebellion did, did so well as well. It's, it's getting that message across that you are not alone. And I know we might be talking about um, uh, those sorts of things as well, is that in my profession, that feeling of isolation can often be overwhelming and you, that's so as a facilitator and um, uh, I would say a network broker sort of bringing people together to sort of see if we can form ideas that's also a big part of uh, sort of what I feel as um, I can maybe contribute to projects is just getting people together and uh, seeing not only where they have um, common ground, but also where they have common problems. And I had thought originally, because you know, working in Sub-Saharan Africa, working in Southeast Asia, uh, being a, um, a a portly uh, white man from a from from a colony from a British colony, um, I, I was initially acutely aware of sort of that um, sort of colonial guilt of being I'm not somebody coming in and saying this is how you should do things or whatever it you have to have that empathy to empower others to be able to say actually you know what you have to say is just as important if not more than important than anyone else and getting through cultural norms of different in different cultures I thought that would be tricky but uh, it's actually um, a, quite frankly people are people and once you even talking about things that may be considered taboo, so long as you fulfill that idea of trust and getting to know people, then those sort, especially in the areas of animal welfare, where let's face it, some laws are there and are good in some countries, but it is there's very many different attitudes to what animal welfare is, unfortunately, and so you get. Uh, the way in is to not be threatening, but also stand your ground when it comes to welfare issues and how you can integrate. It's a little bit like a, being a doctor with the beds, with the, how they get, develop a bedside manner. So I found um, I love karaoke. And so when we started, uh, the, there was a point to that. When we started um, uh, working um, in uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, um, I was delighted to find that many of my many of our colleagues over there also like karaoke. So you get into a room with people you've never met um, from uh, many different cultures, but predominantly um, uh, people from Indonesia and Malaysia. And the first couple of hours is becomes very didactic when you're sort of talking about stuff. And then uh, let's go to a karaoke bar, and then everybody's friends, and then you can actually do the real work so I'm quite happy that conservation is about people because it also that then shows if so long as you show people respect and empathy then they can do it themselves they just um, uh, and that goes in both 
in, in, in all directions. So I got, I got over that. Uh, no, nobody seems to see anybody else's, that's Steve from New Zealand, let's not listen to what he says because he's not from around here sort of thing. Um, uh, it's just that common cause and that mutual respect. Yes, absolutely. Bringing that compassion and kindness yes. and lots of patience yeah. and lots of listening. Like um, I often, you know, try to say, you know, kind of being the forever student, right? You are, you have something to bring and so has everybody else. We have something to learn and so has everybody else. And how can we, like you say, do that in a respectful manner? And include also karaoke if that's what you like. <laughs> sorry, so you get sorry because there's a bumper sticker. So um, uh, knowledge plus time is, is yes. wisdom. Is, is wisdom, isn't it? But then there's some very elderly folk that aren't very wise. But it's it, indeed, yeah. It's it's that sort of um, that trust, and so that so you break down those barriers, and so it becomes it's good in some things to start being a little bit more informal when you're talking about. Um, uh, the really big and important things uh, uh, because then when you get into a more formal arena um, you know that basically you've got a whole team with you that's got your back and uh, when you're dealing with things that are so often so divisive such as um, uh, uh, ecosystem conservation or animal welfare and, and what that actually means uh, it, it's it lends you a sense, of, and I know you know this, Sabrina, because you do it so well as well, is that idea of um, more than camaraderie, but th that uh, this is something that is, we're here for the good of the animals. Let's make this situation better, and here's how we can do it. Do it, and then see how we can improve on what we've done. Um, and it just works better when you're not doing that alone. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, especially when things so also are difficult or perhaps even sometimes overwhelming and where there are a lot of differences of opinions or approaches to kind of see, okay, so where, you know, is our common ground? Why are we here together? Like you say, for the animals, for an ecosystem, for aspects of the planet. And also this, this idea of then you mentioned, you know, it can be quite you know, lonely or like, am I feeling alone in here? And I think all of us, you know, have felt like that at some point or sometimes feel like that. And this, you know, it's not for nothing that, you know, the Lonely Conservationist is a podcast and there's a website <laughs> and, yes. you know, there's all kinds of activities of where people feel we are in this together. And even if it seems that sometimes, you know, things are moving or they're, they're not moving or they're slow, um, ultimately, we have, you know, we are in this together. And that's really so important. And I guess, you know, maybe you could continue talking a little bit about this, this one health concept and one welfare approach and how it relates, you know, the work that you're doing and, and this importance of also connecting people and, and our connection to this, to the planet. I'm free. Okay, sorry. Um, so One Health, I think, is a, one of those sort of buzzwords or the buzz term that has um, uh, is spread about and it's certainly evolved since it first um, was coined in the early 2000s. 
but it speaks to, as a process, everything that we've been talking about um, uh, of interdisciplinary approaches to systems level issues. So the health part is just, uh, you know, the traditional view of dealing with things of uh, that have a component of uh, environment, human and animal health. Uh, and certainly with multi-species um, diseases, that is uh, very uh, important. Similar um, uh, coined terms such as ecosystem health, which may focus obviously a little bit more on the ecosystems, uh, or global health, which focuses a little bit more on the human aspects. But they all, um, uh, the process all integrators recognizes the um, that these big grand challenges of biodiversity loss, of um, uh, issues of um, loss of culture in, in, in animal species, um, and that comes under, under the welfare, the one welfare issue as well, which um, is, is an integrated approach, basically. And uh, so that's the same as the, with, with one welfare, it's sort of health is a subset of welfare, um, uh, in some respects, especially when you um, uh, because uh, when you're dealing with uh, captive um, animals, uh, as you know, obviously that health is uh, one of the five domain or one of the domains of of welfare, um, and. I suppose that it comes back to our idea of systems thinking is everything is a continuum i've been hopefully sort of getting saying that I uh, say welfare and conservation in the same sentence because they are a continuum. Um, uh, in the real world. To conserve uh, species, you need to have healthy and well-adjusted individuals within that um, species, and then that goes for, the, go for go, goes for, uh, so there's, there, there's welfare. And One Health is a health concept of that, that it is all part, uh, that we're all part of a continuum. One Health doesn't fix everything, but if you're looking at issues of um, that uh, in uh, at an ecosystem level, in multi-species and components of human health and community um, uh, uh, health within that, that is a big component of the health issues that we we deal with in um, in wildlife. So the TB, the, tuber the tuberculosis work that I mentioned before, that's a One Health project. The African swine fever, even though that is not what we call a zoonotic infection, so humans can't get infected with it, that's also a One Health um, uh, factor because there are, um, uh, there are human components of that. And we are becoming getting better at sorting these issues out by recognizing that interdisciplinary approach and that sort of re really works. So whether it's One Health, One Welfare, um, uh, Ecosystem Health, Planetary Health, Global Health, One Plan, which is what's being used in um, zoo associations, it means all it means is interdisciplinary approach and joined up thinking within a, 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 within a system. And although our primate brains are excellent and in, 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 um, we show great ingenuity, we're not uh, wired up to think on a systems level. So that's why we can in, invent these processes like One Health and One Welfare to teach our brains to think on that systems level because that's why we call things an ecosystem. They, they are all complex integrated um, uh, with each other. So it's the way the world works. So it kind of makes sense to have an approach that is. Um, uh, um, uh, that links that.
Yes, wonderful. Thank you so much. And we'll Sorry. Sorry, so, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, uh, the, the, I'm, I'm trying to explain um, uh, these concepts to colleagues at uh, the university as well. And it's as soon as they understand it's a concept, it's a, um, a way of working as opposed to an actual discipline, then they start to get it. So, so therefore, you can you can sort of see where the microbiologist comes in, where the animal behaviorist or animal welfare uh, the animal welfare science person comes in, uh, because uh, each it's it's that interdisciplinary approach. Yes, absolutely, and we'll make sure to put some links with this podcast so you can, you know, after listening to this podcast, or if you want to pause it and you're like, oh, I want to learn more about One Health or One Wealthware or the One Plan, uh, you know, you can click on those links and continue, you know, learning more about that. And like you say, it's interdisciplinary, and that's why I really enjoyed it also when earlier you mentioned, you know, the Natural History Museum, and people might be like, what? Why is this yes. relevant? But, okay, you know. uh, yeah, it's, I think, uh, maybe it comes from the way of things. So um, I know this is, that's, a, that's a very specific example uh, in that we knew we were dealing, we were able to identify the parasite that we were dealing with. We were able to um, look at potential treatments and therapeutics to make the birds better. Um, uh, but what we did not have was somebody who was understanding of the biology of that parasite to be able to help us break transmission, that sort of stuff. And in the UK, the um, uh, uh, Natural History Museum in London, uh, uh, it, well, they're, they're world leaders in that sort of in that sort of thing. And that then led. Okay, so you have that collaboration, but that then led into um, uh, ongoing work with them and a variety of other sort of um, uh, um, uh, parasite sort of things. I'm not sure, Sabrina, if you met um, Dr. Wendy Bailey, who's from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And yes, that, we were, yeah, of course, yes. So, so, that, that, so there's another perfect example. I got her into Chester Zoo because we, we found an amoeba in our Komodo dragons. Wendy um, is a, uh, a parasite specialist in sub-Saharan Africa working with humans uh, at the Liverpool Tropical School. And, uh, but... Uh, we I contacted them on on a on a whim, I suppose, or contacted her uh, to sort of say, you know, is is this? Are we right in this diagnosis? Because we weren't getting any information from uh, other veterinary sources, and she said yes. Or obviously, very intrigued to know that it was in a Komodo dragon, and from there um, uh, continues to work with Pasa. Um, uh, on parasite issues at that human ape interface. So, and uh, yeah, so I could, I could go on forever about all these other different sorts of collaborations. So, so, so that was a parasitology example, uh, but that's the sort of thing is as a systems thinker, it's really knowing what you don't know and finding the right people in other disciplines to help you. And it's really easy as soon as you start mentioning, well, certainly it was easy with the Komodo dragon, but as soon as you start, start mentioning uh, any sort of wildlife species to other um, uh, people working in other disciplines who don't normally work with that species, uh, then uh, yes, they, they jump at the chance. So at, from that respect, it's quite easy to get people involved. Um, uh, uh, so yeah. Yes, wonderful. I still remember, um, you know, the wonderful workshop in Cameroon and, 
and um, Dr. Wendy Bailey being there. And so that was really, really good. And also this example reminds me of some, you know, of the work by Dr. Andrew Kitchener, who is at the National Museums uh, Scotland and his work on looking at, you know, bones and, uh, and how that has informed, you know, zoo veterinarians to look at preventive healthcare and, you know, in aging animals and, and all kinds of others. So it's, it's so interesting. And I think these examples are really nice, you know, to, and I'm glad you bring them up to show how many different people and expertise are necessary to, you know, find all those pieces of the puzzle. And um, yeah, so let's dive a little bit deeper in your work with PASA and, sure. uh, you know, what you have oh, but, done for but, PASA. But, and, okay, so, yeah. so, so, so um, just, just you mentioning it, um, Andrew actually does remind me is that you're totally right. His work in looking at the, um, uh, the issues of bones um, in elderly zoo housed animals after they pass away is some fundamental work that can link that with back with behavior and uh, pain management and palliative and end of life care and what that actually means. So uh, vital. But anyway, yep. Um, yes. And just on that note, you know, um, we have a book coming out on the caring for aging animals and, uh, and I'm so delighted that he is contributing with the chapter on exactly all this important work. So yeah, thank you so Brilliant. much. I shall look forward to that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so, no, um, uh, so, so Pasa, so uh, as I mentioned, um, it was uh, Wayne Boardman who at that stage was working at Ngambar Island, which is a chimpanzee sanctuary in, in, in Uganda. Um, uh, and I just finished a stint at uh, Melbourne Zoo in Australia. Uh, and wanted to get back out into the field again. And he said, why don't you go to Cameroon? And at that stage, I wasn't entirely sure where Cameroon was, um, uh, but uh, you know, we figured it out. And it, we, we had the option of either going to Cameroon to work with PASA or to go to Papua New Guinea to work with tree kangaroos. Um, and being wanting to see animals, I was told that if I went to um, see tree kangaroos I wouldn't actually see tree kangaroos because they're from the trees and it's too dangerous to go and climb and find them so we decided to go and work with um, uh, primates in Pasa and so Limbe Wildlife Centre as uh, a founder member of um, the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance and uh, in 2003 that was the first year that um, they had a veterinary workshop um, uh, and that was actually uh, in uh, Uganda and Wayne set that up. Now, when I then joined Chester Zoo and uh, Wayne left in Gamba Island, Chester was wonderful in that they um, allowed me to continue to be involved and help the Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance with um, uh, their veterinary program, or um, it became the animal health program. And in 2006, I took that over as coordinator. So between 2006 and 2014, um, uh, we would run annual workshops. We provided um, uh, uh, clinical materials and uh, uh, we were, we were, there's a passive um, animal health manual, which is uh, currently being updated. Uh, and then uh, in 2019, um, uh, I re-engaged um, uh, with the team over there, in this time in conjunction with uh, colleagues at the Robert Cock Institute, so I'm not sure if you know Fabian Lindertz, um, but uh, guys, if you want to know anything about 
um, uh, pathogens and African apes. He is your guy. Um, uh, but and then with um, Dominic Travis at the University of Minnesota, and um, uh, when from 2019 we're continuing to work with Parson now on uh, their tuberculosis strategy initially, but uh, also. Uh, again, with uh, uh, what with one thing and another over the last uh, year or two, say with COVID nineteen, um, uh, helping them with disaster preparedness and response into the future. So, uh, as sort of a, and as an external advisor, so um, it's really I would say with the word gratifying, but it's great to sort of see because they had that gap between twenty fourteen and twenty nineteen. And then, uh, because obviously there were new people coming into the to, to the group, and just the advancements that they were doing. That word alliance at the end of the PASA um, acronym is so important uh, because it's collectively at that human primate interface um, uh, in in those wildlife uh, um, rescue centers and sanctuaries. That is where, from a One Health point of view. Um, uh, is going to potentially going to be problems. So making sure that those people are well trained um, is kind of crucial um, to preventing that disease spread. So uh, it's, the, but the biggest thing with working with PASA was, uh, again, it's the people. Same at Chester uh, is you really feel uh, for all the arguments and for all the um, strategic upsets and for all the, uh, that everybody has that passion and drive and wants the same thing, the best for the animals. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm still very grateful that in 2009, you asked me to. That was Kenya, wasn't it? Yeah, it's really yeah. <laughs> incredible. You know, it's 12 years ago and I'm still, you know, working as a volunteer for PASA. I really, I really love it. I think it's amazing the work they do. So thank you again for, you oh, know, pleasure. I, was, I remember you in 2000, that you were there, obviously, but I didn't remember it was, it was my suggestion, but uh, God, um, yeah. that was a really good suggestion. <laughs> so, yes, not, was... not just for you, but I mean, for PASA as well. It's, it's great that you're, that you're still, um, still volunteering with them. Yeah. I still, I, I remember you going, oh, you speak French and English? That's just... Yeah. <laughs> I, you, see, you notice I didn't even consider Dutch. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, <that's> <laughs> yeah. So, but you don't only work with African primates, apart from all the other taxa you work with, but you also do a lot of work for orangutans. And can you talk, mm -hmm. talk a little bit about... Um, yes, there is a, absolutely. There's a definite link there. Um, uh, uh, listeners might be familiar with the International Primate Society um, meetings that are held every year, two years. In 2008, um, uh, the then um, executive director of PASA, uh, Mr. Doug Cress, um, brought me and a uh, colleague, Rachmad, uh, who was um, a, a senior veterinarian at the Sumatran Orangutan Conservation Program at the time, together um, with uh, another person, Dr. Rafaela Kamatonte, uh, who had been working at the Buena Orangutan Survival Foundation. And Doug said that we guys really needed to talk because um, the only people at that time who were talking uh, in the orangutan world were the veterinarians and wouldn't it be great if you could set up a similar sort of system to PASA, but um, with orangutans. So um, uh, I, had, although I'd been to Southeast Asia many times, I'd never been to um, uh, Indonesia. Uh, I had worked with orangutans throughout my zoo career. So clinically I was happy with them and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and by having um, this being asked for by people in Indonesia and Malaysia, 
that was obviously key. So it comes back to that idea of you know not going in and saying this is what what you want to do. So uh, Rafaela, who is uh, although she'd worked in Indonesia, she's um, uh, she's uh, from the states and is currently at um, California California Fullerton. We uh, shared all the contacts with Rachmad and uh, I was there as sort of like the passer person to sort of sort of set this ball rolling and see how it went. Um, and uh, you gods, what an absolutely amazing, again, another amazing bunch of people. Here you have a group of um, uh, Indonesians and Malaysians who are so passionate about um, their orangutans and their gibbons, yay, um, but um, uh, wildlife in general. Uh, or then they knew precisely what was needed, what to do. Um, and we know it sort of worked together on that. So uh, although the organization is called the Orangutan Veterinary Advisory Group, um, and that was requested by the um, people attending that first meeting in 2009, the remit has extended beyond veterinary work. So it's we're, we're, um, in the next meetings in July and we're starting to get people in, or well, actually since 2011, um, uh, people involved in management, people involved in the field. So um, uh, people as diverse as the Sabah Wildlife Department, um, the Hutan Project um, uh, and the um, uh, uh, Nature Foundation, all three of which are the governmental or tend to work in conservation being able to bring those people together with people working in uh, they don't call them sanctuaries in, in Indonesia but they call them uh, it's a more rehabilitation centers the same sort of thing you get um, displaced or um, uh, uh, young orangutans just as you do in past the sanctuaries coming in and you either provide them a home for life you either re or re rehabilitate them to go out into um, uh, to, as part of a reintroduction program um, or um, uh, you um, th th they don't survive and so those are the, those are the three things that this, and you know, so it's across the board. And where we are now is um, uh, as a an organized not it's it's a network. So that's that's why they use the word group. Uh, we could have just used the word alliance because uh, whenever Americans look at OVAG, they say the word OVAG, which I think is absolutely disgusting. But that was not the intent. Um, uh, but um, you know because it came from the people involved we're very reluctant to change it but it's again it's an alliance an alliance of organizations and like-minded people a network not a member organization so we can uh, but it is now seen even by the indonesian government as this if you want to talk about orangutan health you talk to ovag and so we coordinate uh, like Farina, which is the organization in Indonesia that deals with all things orangutan conservation. We uh, work with the Indonesian Veterinary Medical Association. So the work we do for the Indonesian vets at least um, is considered as continuing professional development. And so we've, we've got structured for that. And we work with the, um, uh, um, uh, uh, the Indonesian wing of uh, the Southeast Asian Zoo, Zoo Association, uh, uh, because obviously we're trying to encompass across the board um, these sorts of th th those sorts of opportunities. And one thing that um, the wonder that is SARS-CoV-2 has um, allowed us to do is rapidly advance our online um, training materials as well. So we're you you can't work with people without actually being in physical presence with each other but we have been able to and hope that we're going to be doing that from next year again but it, this um, pause in being able to be face to face with each other has given us the opportunity to really bring in 
um, uh, some top quality continuing professional development for you and everything from nutrition through to orthopedics through to um, uh, uh, um, enclosure design all and, 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 and everything in between. Uh, so yeah, it's, but again, it's, it's the people who are there and I'm, Raphael and I myself are definitely taking a back seat. There's a committee um, and the, uh, you know, if we got, it's the whole point of that succession planning. If we got run over by a bus tomorrow, as the saying goes, uh, it would carry on and they would continue to go from strength to strength. So it's, uh, I'm proud of it, um, simply because of the people that are that are there with that commitment to carrying carrying it on yes and we'll definitely also put a link to that and i think you're making another really important point there is that you know by coming together this network um, and working together on so many different aspects then at some point it becomes like this you know, go to organization, go to place. It has taken on that that sort of um, size and value and importance that it's seen as this ex expert, you know, go to organization, which can then also again help in some of the other aspects that you mentioned, like policy and other you know things that need to happen. But you know, often you know people coming together from different backgrounds and creating these sorts of networks can really be such a driver into making things happen that might not happen if we wait for policy to be in place or so yeah, on. Uh, because, it, it, um, yeah, and I think, you know, this aspect also of doing continuous personal development online is just such a great uh, addition to these in-person workshops uh, and it's become so accessible. We can, you know, connect, you know, obviously COVID it's, it's, you know, trying and it's really, really difficult on so many levels. And then it has also opened so many doors of us connecting with experts around the world and getting knowledge uh, that before, you know, we didn't do in this way. So, yeah, there's. No, it's, and, it, and, and I know we were talking previously about um, sort of like the feeling of isolation and conservation in general, and, uh, and maybe uh, certainly um, uh, people who work in welfare, so nobody's listening to me or whatever. Um, uh, and the, and for both um, PASA and OVAG, but it's become more um, more of a thing with OVAG, is, is that just organically, the idea is that we are part of a family. And uh, th that's by doing this, that's important. By being a, a family, that doesn't, you know, every family is dysfunctional in some way, shape or form. Um, uh, some you always love them, but sometimes you hate them. Um, but the point being is that you always, or you should always, in a good family, trust them. And that's the sort of sort of thing is that uh, the participants having that understanding that they are in control, but everybody else has got their backs. So um, and so when it comes, and that includes when it comes to sort of um, putting out guidelines for what centers should be doing um, uh, during COVID-19, for example, uh, right through to um, a euthanasia policy that everybody is happy with. And heck, talking about euthanasia as, as part of welfare in a country like Indonesia, that's a big thing. Um, and, but the conversations need to be had, especially from an animal welfare point of view. And you start to realize that euthanasia is not a cultural thing. Um, often it's or those sorts of big topics about it's more, um, 
things that are uncomfortable for people to talk about openly um, as part of the toolkit for improving animal welfare. And that's where the trust sort of comes in. So th th those are the sorts of things of uh, nobody likes to see, well, I'll take that back. Most people don't like to see animals suffering um, and uh, certainly in, in, in the areas that we work in. And that is also one of the biggest stresses, certainly on the veterinarians and healthcare work, care, animal care workers, should I say, uh, uh, is that um, that feeling of this animal suffering and there's nothing I can do for it. Um, those are the sorts of big conversations that you have because that links uh, the practitioner mental health and well-being with the subject or animal health and well-being uh, in quite quite a fundamental way that can lead to things like compassion fatigue and burnout which if not um, remedied oh that was heavy sorry <laughs> yes no but this is very you know you and I are both uh, very much interested and, and committed to this um, topic of human well-being in relationship to animal well-being and making also sure that or trying to promote as much as possible facilitate as much as possible that the people who are caring for animals whether they are veterinarians or animal care staff but also you know the lonely conservationist people caring for species for you know ecosystems for the planet that how can we continue to do our jobs our work, the things that we are committed to and being well as we are serve in service of others, right? And so, and this is an important, very important topic. And, uh, and I think you've mentioned already also very valuable words such as community and family and network and connections that, you know, I've got your back, you know, even if we don't agree all the time or, you know, and that's completely normal. Um, we are in this together and that sort of feeling. So, uh, and, you know, the interconnectedness again of it all. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, and yeah, it's pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, because it, it is important. And, and you know, it, um, that's kind of what uh, um, in-person conferences do is that you're there to listen to the stuff, but the really important stuff happens in the bar or in the uh in the foyer um sorry for our american listeners that's that's a lobby um but being able to uh and having that so so uh, but when it becomes um uh, sort of like a, that, and that that's why we form these associations that sort of thing uh and some are more successful at being able to cater for that um uh, than others um uh but as the lonely conservationist um in the forest or um uh single vet being told uh, the worst situation i heard uh, sort of thing is um uh a, a manager um, uh, saying that, um, I think he was joking, but just sort of saying, I've employed a veterinarian, so now I don't need to have need to worry about the animals getting sick anymore. And so that, that so that's it's already isolating that person, that particular veterinarian was out of vet school because they were cheap, i.e. free and had no experience with that. So, and so that's a very quick and easy way to um, uh, um, the well-being of that person 
at such a level that they they just can't can't continue. And so a big thing with both PASA and OVAG is as new vets come into and um, and now also as, as all vets, sorry, as new managers come in as well, is having that support network beyond the workshop so that, that we're part of big whatsapp groups and sort of others, others going off and all that sort of thing and, and, and smaller teams and groups and what have you so it's not just once a year um, but it's continuous that you feel um, welcomed into that so we've had um, uh, young Indonesians coming into OVAG for example over the last 18 months where none of us have actually been able to um, uh, meet up in, in person although that's starting to happen a little bit in Indonesia which is great um, uh, who thankfully are still getting that feeling of camaraderie because we only really started to talk about participant mental health and well-being back in 2019 and um, I felt that the best way to sort of engage in that was to make it a little bit remote. So I talked about initially the situation that was going on with veterinarians here in the UK, how it's very concerning about the high rate of suicide and the high rate of people dropping out of the profession because of stress and everything in between. Um, uh, and there is just no data on that in uh, Indonesia. There's a little bit on Malaysia, but, but um, not, not, not so much. Um, and so that was starting off as very didactic. And I was overwhelmed by the people coming up afterwards, sometimes several months afterwards, uh, and sort of relaying similar sorts of stories or, or hearing about those sorts of things. And that really started the conversation going. So I did what was counterintuitive for me. I usually like to have a kumbaya moment and get everybody together and having a bit of a chat. But by starting it off on that di uh, um, didactic way of showing what was happening in another country, that actually helped, I think. And so this year, um, we're going to continue with that development because more than just being a place where everybody feels at home, and so therefore they will do their work better when they go back to their respective work because they know they're part of this, this network, to actually start listening more to people that might genuinely be struggling. And we're not experts, so this is one thing that we're looking at of how we can actually have people do that anonymously and then um, point them in the right direction to um, uh, either everything from professional help to just having support networks within the within the group and again everything in between uh, but you can only do that when you have sort of that sort of trusting environment and I know large conservation organizations do similar things for their um, uh, workers you know like WWF or WCS to try and minimize that feeling of isolation because the more that continues then those people are going to get disheartened they leave the profession uh, or they leave the the um, organization and you lose all of those skills and um, potentially that person from the sector uh, and nobody wants that. So that's the other thing we're trying to see is um, we have been anecdotally successful at getting people and retaining people at their organizations. Uh, so this is VETS I'm talking about um, uh, within the OVAG network. Um, uh, before OVAG, the average life of lifespan, that's a bad phrase, the, the average time a VET spent in a wildlife center was 18 months. Um, now it's close to five years. So those sorts of things and and 
we've had feedback to say that the reason they've stayed in is because they now feel supported because of this network. Um, uh, because you know, if you do all this capacity building and capacity development only to have people leave, it it's it's not going to improve. So it's important for everybody to pull together um, uh, and and help everybody along. And that's there's the kumbaya moment. But uh, it it really is. We're a social primate and without validation and respect for what we do um it, it, we will fail yes thank you for sharing such Good. important information and also some of the strategies that has helped people and you know really talking about this because it is important and as you say kind of maybe starting on the fringes or examples of others like i often talk about my own experiences and then also when I do presentations or talk with people and then like you say sometimes people come afterwards or they write you an email or you know maybe later but um, yeah just really just putting it out there that people know this it's okay to talk about this and it's okay to also admit that you might also be feeling in certain ways and and how can we help each other uh, like you say that community that network and you know I think you have touched upon so many different topics. Sorry. No, that's really great. Really, good luck with editing this. I'm sorry. I'm just sort of going off on a little bit of a soapbox there. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Please do. Yeah, soapboxes. I always say, you know, tangents, soapboxes, all of those are very welcome. This is exactly why we have these podcasts is to share all this different information. And, and you, I think, you know, the red thread really uh, in this podcast has been connection, interconnectedness, you know, uh, whether it's human health, other animals' health, uh, and also, uh, and well-being, and, you know, how it all connects together and working together, do, do such keywords here. Can you, at the end for this podcast, talk a little bit, maybe, maybe share, we all love animal stories and, you know, uh, success stories. You already shared some wonderful human success stories as well, um, people staying longer in jobs and so on. Do you have, at the end of this podcast, uh, a fun or a success story with an animal that you could share with us? Oh, on the spot. So many. Let's oh, move. rifle through um, the sorts of things. So, I think uh, it's not a single single thing, but um, uh, just one of the joys in certainly working in wildlife rehabilitation. Um, and this takes me back to my uh, days of working with Australian Wildlife in Australia uh, and working um, with reintroduction programs um, at places like uh, Pastor and OVAG, is putting all of the attention to detail and, and, and work in and then seeing those animals for the, that, that, that you've been rehabilitating, seeing those animals for the first time, um, experiencing being back out in the wild and of course that's the beginning of the journey because post-release monitoring to make sure everything goes okay or whatever but those first few moments of for want of a better term freedom um that that is yeah that that that's that that's a fantastic feeling so whether it's a um a, a sooty shearwater off the coast of um uh, queensland and australia um or uh, a young um orangutan um, in Indonesia, it, it's uh, it's always something special. Uh, clinically, um, again, too many to sort of um, uh, put in there. Um, maybe the first ever 
uh, um, surgery that I did um, uh, as, as an undergraduate student. So before I touched a dog or a cat surgically, um, uh, the wonderful Dr. Wayne Boardman, under very close supervision, allowed me to um, castrate a young macaque. And learning about the reasons for that uh, went successfully. I kept the little testicles in a histology jar on top of my piano, much to the um, uh, uh, disgust of my um, housemates. But by doing that, protect it was uh, good for the welfare of that individual animal uh, as the young male, and also for the rest of the group in a well-managed um, uh, population in captivity. So that message beyond the actual surgery um, ha has stuck with me. So, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing, especially also, you know, these kind of detailed stories of managing animals in, in human care and also, you know, being witnessing these like animals being released back to the wild or going, you know, to the wild for the first time. And, you know, you talked about burnout and compassion fatigue. And when we talk about compassion um, fatigue, we also, and, and, you know, we can also talk about compassion satisfaction, you know, the things that like you talked about, the joys that are brought to us through the jobs, the work that we do. And, um, and also, you know, vicarious resilience, this being, bearing witness to the healing, to the well-being of animals or you know ecosystems and and those fueling us forward in in what it is that we are doing and uh, thank you so much for sharing thank you. these stories yeah, yeah that's it, 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 it helps heal ourselves uh, yes. both as both as a species and individuals so yeah exactly. that's great and yeah. well, thank you for the opportunity it's it's been it's been wonderful having a chat with you yes thank you so much steve and i hope to have you back because there's a ton of things we didn't talk about today <laughs> So many projects, but uh, looking forward to having you on another podcast again. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Sabrina. Bye, everyone. Thanks, guys. So that was the end of another podcast with Steve Unbin. That was absolutely wonderful. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourselves so you can be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice. So where you can get education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.